made it my goal to just become better at leading, better at strategy, better at business, better with people. Um, things improved and improved dramatically with the maturity that came from making lots of mistakes but learning from them. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Success Times Happiness Podcast. I am your host, Richard Thompson, and today we have a very special guest, a good friend of mine, Travis Schultz. Travis is a husband, a father, a lawyer, and a business owner. He'd have to be considered one of the best lawyers in his area of expertise in the country and arguably one of the best businessmen in law as well. He is a philanthropist, giving so much of his time to local charities, and is just genuinely a really lovely human being. I can't wait to sit down with Trav, pick his brain about business, life, and all things success and happiness. As always, if you like this episode or any of the episodes that we do, please feel free to share it with your friends. It really is so appreciative. All right, let's sit down with Trav and let's get into it. Travis Schultz, thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure to be here, Richard. Thanks for having me along. So you, you're admitted in 1994. You become partner of your firm a couple of years after that and managing partner at, in 1998. And in that role as managing partner for the next 16 years, you develop a firm and a culture and a business to then that goes through well, the dot-com bubble, goes through GFC and this Sunshine Coast law firm you create with your other business partners sells for $19 million in 2014. Talk me through that year and how that, how you reflect on that. It was certainly um, a tumultuous time um, when you've created a baby, so to speak, and someone wants to buy that baby from you. Um, there's a, um, a lot um, of inward thinking. Um, it's difficult to give away to sell something that is so near and dear. Um, but look, it was it was uh, a time where we were going through changes from a regulatory perspective, changes to the law. We had people in the partnership who wanted different things. And I think the collective view was that, look, um, it was at the time, uh, it was a, a good, sensible commercial decision to make. Um, we were concerned most significantly about the impact on people. Um, the sleepless nights were perhaps more uh, around the impact on the loyal, long-suffering team uh, who had provided so much support for so long and whether they would be looked after um, or adversely impacted. And the second consideration was, you know, of course, what are they going to do to my baby? Mm. Um, but look, that was it was a decision that once made, um, you had to see it through. Um, it, as it turned out, uh, it wasn't um, exactly as it was meant to be. Um, there were some challenges. The firm that bought my practice had um, engaged in some acquisitions abroad as well as in the country. There was one spectacular fail in the UK, which really was their undoing. Um, and that, unfortunately, uh, which was just entirely unforeseeable, um, had repercussions across Australia, including Queensland, including the Sunshine Coast and Brisbane, where 
our practices were then based between the Sunshine Coast, North Lakes and Brisbane. And at that time, we had a team of almost 80, uh, which, you know, it's making a medium-sized firm, certainly nothing compared to the big firms that are global these days. But it was, you know, by Sunshine Coast standards, certainly it was the largest law firm on the coast um, by a significant margin. So, yeah, it was, it was a difficult decision. It was a difficult time. Um, but, you know, you can't live with regrets um, onwards and upwards. And then you serve your contractual obligations to stay there for as long as you did and then your time out of practice on the sidelines. And then I remember sitting down with you in that time asking whether you had any ideas of returning and you didn't know or you were thinking about contemplating your options. And then you did come back and you did start your own firm again, I guess, Travis Schultz Law and now Travis Schultz and Partners. Why come back? Why come back? Um, Look, there are a couple of reasons for that, to be honest, to be fair about it. Um, Partly, I had unfinished business. I had more to give. Um, I still loved the law. I'd been doing consultancy work with some other firms to try and help them strategically, operationally, um, and I loved doing that. Um, but I also had a number of the people who I'd worked with for many years who had fallen out of the firm that had acquired Schultz, Timmy O'Brien. Um, they'd had a rounds or had rounds upon rounds of redundancy as they fell apart at the seams. And some of these people, um, you know, they had families, they had mortgages. Um, they needed employment and they wanted to work in an environment where they had job satisfaction. Um, and I guess it was through those conversations that I went, you know what, the time is right. Let's just start a little, a little small boutique uh, compensation law firm. Um, let's have seven or eight people and a manageable workload. Let's enjoy life and see where it takes us and just be the best that we can be. Or did you struggle with the idea of who are you without being a lawyer? Were you comfortable with that? Or did you, was that, was that a, also, a, you talked about wanting to give more. I presume that's a, about the work. But how do you, uh, I guess, calibrate Travis Schultz without the law? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, look, we all have a persona. Um, we all become who we are, so to speak. Uh, for me, yeah, I'd always been a Sunshine Coast lawyer, um, I guess also a South East Queensland lawyer, given I've had such a practice in Brisbane as well. Um, and to be someone without the badge of lawyer behind me, it's a different personality. But I don't think it was a sense of loss you know, of that professional brand, so to speak, that really spurred me on. I was already involved in a number of boards. I was serving on the, the Council of the Queensland Law Society, for example. Um, I'd been elected to that in 2000, and I got this right, 17, um, to serve 2018, 2019 term. I served on boards. I was then the deputy chair of Matthew Flinders Anglican College. I was on the board of the Turf, Sunshine Coast Turf Club, chair of the Flinders Foundation, um, on the board of Life Flight Foundation, um, doing a lot of, of those sorts of roles. And great satisfaction comes from that. Um, so I had a separate identity, I guess, through all of that other work that I've been doing. But to me, having a law practice, like any business, it 
gave you the opportunity to leverage the good that you could do. It was an opportunity through using the personnel that you had, the resources at your disposal to do so much more good in the community than you could do on your own. Mm. And for example, when you've got the brand of a law firm, like any other business, you can uh, put together charity events very easily and effectively through your connections, through your network. You've got the, the staff, the team on board to help to organise those. Um, so no, I don't think that there was a, a tragic sense of loss of, of professional identity uh, after I sold the previous practice. I don't think that was the key driver, but there's absolutely no doubt that I saw that the, the good I could do could be leveraged so much more significantly through having an organisation of that type behind me. Let's go back. Talk to me about your childhood and into secondary school sort of uh, experience for you going into university. Yeah, um, so I, um, I was born in Darwin, of all places. Um, parents were teaching the Indigenous um, on Groot Island, had been Melville Island of the Gulf of Carpentaria. Um, as the story goes, I was almost born on a vegetable plane because it was the only plane leaving the island when my mum went into premature labour with me. Um, I didn't stay too long in Darwin, back to Queensland, Darling Downs based family, um, started school in Toowoomba, old man got a promotion in inverted commas to a head of department at Emerald State High School. Um, that must have been around about late 1977, um, arrived there early 1978 from memory. Did a few years of primary school up there. Um, there was then another promotion in inverted commas to Caloundra State High School, high school and we moved. And that's when I landed on the Sunshine Coast. That was December 1980. And I've been on the Sunshine Coast ever since. Um, so my schooling, um, finished on the Sunshine Coast. Um, my father was later teaching at Emmanuel College at Maroochydaw. Um, then teachers could get good staff discounts on tuition fees. Um, so that opportunity was taken. Not that it wasn't a struggle. Um, my mum returned to work. She's a teacher as well. She actually ended up teaching at Caloundra State High School um, as well. Then later took a job at Coolum State High as deputy principal and was there for about 15 or 20 years before she retired in that same role. Um, but yeah, I, I graduated from um, Emmanuel, um, very middle class family. My parents had separated by the time that I got through year 12. A uh, much younger brother who was just starting high school when I'd finished. He was due to start year eight the year after I, f I finished year 12. Uh, my sister had been away at university. She was two years older, studying um, initially human movements and arts, then teaching, and she chopped and changed for a while. But um, that, look, there just wasn't the opportunity for, for me to be supported at university as well. Um, you know, parents had mortgages, um, had separated. There just wasn't the financial capacity then for anyone to support me going away to university full time, uh, particularly with my younger brother about to start at a private school, albeit a subsidised one, um, because of the staff discounts. My sister's still at university. Um, but back then, you could study law externally if and only if you had what were called articles of clerkship, which is like an indentureship where it's almost an apprenticeship, I guess, where you sign your life away for six years, or five years indentureship, six years study, working in a law firm full-time while you study. And for me, it was a chance to, to pay my own way through um, it gave me the option to do law. Um, I started on $165 a week. Um, so even then, 
that wasn't enough to run a car because there's no public transport on the Sunshine Coast. You yeah, the um, articles here? Articles at a firm in Maroochydore, a yeah. firm that no longer exists. Blackwell Appiard and Thompson, as they were then called. Um, and, yeah, I took a second job. I refereed soccer uh, on weekends and I started a little process-serving um, business to try and earn the extra dollars to pay for the textbooks that you'd need from semester to semester. Um, and, yeah, there it was. Um, you learned a lot doing it that way, that's for sure. And talk to me about that experience uh, as an article clerk. You're doing – you're at university as well, studying for the degree. That would have been – well, what was that experience like as a junior – as a very junior, not even admitted yet? Solicitor. Yeah, it was a challenging time. Um, it, it was difficult because you had to make sacrifices. You had to prioritise. There wasn't the opportunity to do everything. You could certainly have everything, but not all at once. And it meant that you had to meet the demands of the job and it wasn't a nine-to-five job. Um, there were expectations of additional hours, particularly when you had cases or projects or things that had to be done. Um, sometimes very long hours, and then you had to find time to do the study. And you'd try as very best you could to one night a week allocate as your social time where you'd catch up with friends or do something of a social nature. So it was difficult. Um, do I regret it? No. Would I choose it for my son? No. Um, does it make you a better lawyer? I think so because you had to learn to find efficiencies. You had to learn ways to be productive um, you certainly developed resilience and you realised that you had to prioritise um, and there was only one way it was going to happen and that was just hard work, plain and simple. The attrition rate out of that form of studying law then, which was only offered through the Queensland University of Technology, QIT became QUT, um, the attrition rate was horrendous. Um, you know, of, of those who started year one law, um, less than half were there by year three. Um, it just wasn't easy. It just wasn't easy. Um, but no, Richard, I, I have no regrets about it. Um, it's, it was certainly an experience. It taught me a lot. Um, and as I said, it was an opportunity to do law, to pay my way through um, a degree while I was studying. Uh, and it gave me the opportunity I wouldn't otherwise have had. Your master, your the, the head solicitor that was looking after you in that clerkship, did you learn a lot from that? Yeah, look, it was a different time, Richard. Um, the way that professionals behaved, the way that leaders led was different then, particularly those who came from what I'll call the old school background. Um, my master, um, he was a fellow who was very highly regarded in the community um, had been very heavily involved in a lot of community organisations and charities, including Surf Lifesaving. Uh, he was, you know, a celebrated lawyer in his field, um, but he was very old school and certainly his approaches to developing lawyers to leadership uh, were not ones which you'd be comfortable with today. Um, certainly, um, I swore to myself after my first year of articles that I would never behave towards any employee or any article clerk 
the way that I was being treated. Um, it, it, back then, it was seemingly acceptable to give the article clerk the most meaningless tasks um, that you could, you would be sent to pick up fish and chips to lunch, to dry cleaning, to go to the post office, do this banking, can you go to the shopping centre and get this from the supermarket while you're trying to do these things on files and learn at the same time. Your value to the organisation as a first-year article clerk was low um, for good reason. You didn't know much. Um, but to be yelled at and belittled because you didn't know, um, it was hard to take. Um, to be treated um, as though you were just um, the lowest peg in the pecking order because you were just a first-year article clerk, um, it was difficult, uh, it was an adjustment, and it was old school. Um, that was probably one of the lowest times in my in my career, in my life. It was a time where I almost gave up. Um, it was that first year that I went and saw a friend, an old school friend, um, had lunch with her and said to her, I think, I think I'm going to have to give this away. And it wasn't because I was finding the work too difficult. It wasn't because I was finding the study too onerous. It wasn't because of the balancing act that was required between work, study, social life, family, sporting interests. It was just the demeaning way that it was then acceptable to deal with young uh, training professionals. And, yeah, I had to make a decision and I almost gave it away. Where did that resilience come from? I don't think I have an answer to the question. Um, but, look, we all have different backgrounds. We all come from different places. Um, as a consequence of that, we all have different perspectives. Um, and, you know, the villain is the hero of their own story, as they say. Um, I think from my perspective, I, I had uh, a childhood, like we all did, um, that was had that had its ups and downs. Um, we I didn't come from a family that could afford to give me a lot. They gave me what I needed. Um but there's a lot I went without. And I learned, I guess, that you just sometimes you've just got to accept your lot and roll on. And I you know, I remember when I was at school, it was a private school, not an expensive one, but it was a private school. But you know, I was the only kid in year twelve who didn't have a blazer. Um, and I, at the time, I found that hard um, because, you know, I stood out. No kid at 16, 17 wants to stand out. Um, but I was the kid with the woolen jumper with the hole in it because I think it was bought secondhand. But again, you know, that's just, you, you learn. You, you cop it, you roll on, um, you've got two choices. You lie down and cry or you push on and you push on. I appreciate you sharing that. You had, you had a choice, though, um, going forward, whether you looked at him as an anti-hero and you just made that decision that I would never treat someone like that. You could have easily have said that's the way it is in the industry and that's where it's how I'm going to act in the future. Two questions. One is why do you think you saw that as an anti-hero and you said, you're able to go, that's that's a line in the sand I'm not going to cross again. And secondly, how do you calibrate that in terms of your experience and how challenging that is? Those skill sets or that experience has led you maybe to the success in the ridiculously talented lawyer that you are now. 
and then does that, is there a relationship between that difficult few years and the resilience around that to where you are now? Well, first of all, I think you're overstating my relative success. Um, but I think it's fair to say that you just have to build resilience if you are going to be able to overcome the hiccups that you inevitably are going to experience in life. Um, I don't know that necessarily it was just that first year or two working in that firm that um, caused me to take the approach that I did. I think that's something which is a, a, a whole um, mixture, uh, a potpourri of life experiences that puts you in that mindset. But at that age, I, like others, lacked the maturity to understand. I lacked the insight into the big picture. I couldn't understand. But, you know, you're, you're straight out of school, you're studying law, um, you don't have the wealth of experiences um, to draw on uh, in order to understand you know, what is going on um, and to understand it's going to be okay. So then you become admitted, you go into, your, into the firm and you become partner and then managing partner. When did it dawn on you that it's not just the practice of law that you enjoyed, but it's it was the area of business and people management? Yeah, so it, it was accidental. Um, pretty much all I've done has been accidental. Um, making mistakes along the, the way. You're the expert today, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> making mistakes along the way and just learning from them. Now, look, I... I uh, to be honest, um, I was very lucky, let's be honest. I was given opportunities um, that many people would never have had. I was fortunate in many respects to be at the right place at the right time to have the opportunities to create something of them. Um, so, yes, there's luck. That's that's fair in every scenario. Um, what you do with that opportunity is a matter for you and how you apply yourself. And I was given this opportunity at the age of 26 to become an equity partner in the firm, then a very small firm. Um, a couple of years later, I was landed with the role of managing partner. Um, it was a role that was meant to rotate between the partners, but just actually never did. Um, and I think it was because um, I was the least worst option when you looked for the various skill sets that you need in that managerial role as a partner, the leadership role. You've got to have a blend of skills. You've got to have some ability to read financials and understand, you know, be able to read a balance sheet. You need enough empathy and compassion to lead people. You need to be able to motivate and engage. Um, you need to have the ability um, to grow the business strategically. You've got to have, I guess, the ability to see the bigger picture of vision. Um, and when we really looked at the range of skill sets. You do the matrix as to what's required for the role. Um, I was the least worst option. Um, and so there it was. And from there, I bumbled my, my way along. Um, but you know, I learned so much along the way. And once I realised, once I realised that, hey, i got to learn, you never stop learning. And I, I really um, made it my goal to just become better at leading, better at strategy better at business, better with people, um, things improved and improved dramatically with the maturity that came from making lots of mistakes but learning from them. And having that open mindset of just learning. A growth mindset. Yeah. You've, um, you've got to always be mindful of impact. And it, I guess it's the big lesson I've learned is that 
people who don't understand or care about the impact that they have on others and they have on stakeholders in their organisation, internal and external, they're the ones who are going to find it very, very difficult to grow um, their organisation. What were the biggest learnings or certainly the, I guess, the mistakes that stand out for you in that time at Schultz Timmy O'Brien? Oh, look, it's, it's, it's difficult to pick one or two. I've made so many mistakes, some horrendous um, scenarios that I look back and go, how did I not see that? How did I, how did I miss that? How did I miss the telltale signs that that person was struggling? And you know, there's one example which I hesitate to even talk about. It involved a team member who um, was showing signs physically that they weren't well. Um, they were not punctual anymore. Um, there were things happening that were out of character. Um, would go missing at times, would be late, would, wouldn't turn up. Um, and anyway, I missed some of these signs and um, you know, at the same time we used to have a wine room where we kept the wine that would be used for functions or events or gifts or whatever and you know, wine was going missing. And I didn't put two and three together and get five. Um, next thing you know, this staff member... Um, it's front page of the paper for high-range drink driving with young kids in the back of the car on the way to school and uh, it's a very sad story. She was just the most beautiful person, um, a friend. Um, I was friends with her before I went into partnership in that first firm and she died of, of alcohol-related um, illness um, and I missed it all. It wasn't until it was too late that um, I became alert to what really was going on and that, you know, that just hurt me. I, I couldn't believe that I had so badly missed the signs. So from there, um, I guess I, you know, I drove myself to really get into leadership and understand human psychology and I committed myself to doing a lot of reading um, to try and find mentors, to further my education and that was really one of the reasons I went to Harvard after I left um, STO to do a course on leading professional services firms. It was all part of that quest for knowledge to understand, to, to know how to lead effectively, how to engage a team, how to create a culture um, that would be the envy of all of your peers, how to get the best out of people, how to improve other people's lives. Um, and at the same time, run a successful organisation. Mm. Um, yeah, it, you've just got to sometimes um, commit to, to learning, do the hard yards and and you'll get better. You're a husband and a father um, on top of all of this. How did fatherhood change you? Yeah, look, I've got to say, um, when Ashton was born, um, it was a real um, struggle. I didn't realise just what an impact this was going to have. It's just a kid, right? Oh, literally. Um, like, look, it changes your perspective again. Uh, I don't think there's a parent in the world who would say that they remained unchanged once they had their first child. Of course it does. Um, and suddenly you've got another priority and it's a very high priority um, and it becomes a juggle. It tears at you when sometimes you've got work or other commitments that mean that you can't do things that you want to do with your kid or kids. Um 
Yeah, look, it was it was, it was a great experience. Um, I've some of the best times of my life have been doing things with him. Um, we still have a very good relationship, despite the fact that he's a teenager. Um, <laughs> notwithstanding the fact that he's just just turned sixteen. Um, yeah, no, look, it's it's just the best thing that could ever happen to anybody is having a child and um, where those of us who have kids are just very fortunate to be in that position because not everyone is. How do you, over the course of that six, those 16 years, how have you personally made that juggle of being next to him all of the time versus showing him that dad's got a job to do and your impact in the wider community, uh, lead by example or show by example for, you know, as a... Well, I think it's about, it's about being a role model um, and it's about compromise. There is absolutely no doubt that I could have been there more for him and done less in growing um, a practice, an organisation, in doing less in serving the community and all the various boards and charities that I, I work with. Um, it, for me, it was about finding balance um, but trying my very best to be a role model, a mentor and a guide. I wanted him to see how he should behave himself in the sense of giving a commitment to your work, to your team, to the community and to other important stakeholders like charities that are a part of the community um, that we serve. Um, so I hope he's seen that. I mean, he's still a teenager and teenagers are what they are. Um, so time will tell um, whether it's worked or not. Um, it could be just another one of those mistakes, Richard, that I learned from. <laughs> yeah, my nine-year-old wants to drop me off, drop him off at school and for me to stay in the car. So I can't wait for the next 21 years. Um, so I'll, I'll, we'll compare notes maybe. Mm. Um, after the buyout and your return back into the profession with what is now known as Trevor Schultz and Partners. What was the professional goal, the business goal there? Which what, is, what does success look like then? Success then looked like getting to the point where we had a viable law firm using a low-fee model, focusing only on fairness and expertise, uh, as I had a point to prove that you could run a professional services firm that way through simply being very fair in what you do and how you charge and being a good corporate citizen, focusing on expertise. Um, I thought it could work and I thought we could get to the point of having seven or eight people and filling our, our office at Balulaba and that would be a successful um, compensation law firm. Where did that motivation come from? Was it the way that S&G treated your first, well, your firstborn child? No. Um, where that low fee expectation, that that vision that you could see that, and focusing on expertise rather than high charge rate. Yeah. So when I um, was doing some consultancy work, I guess I asked myself the question: Well, where's the gap in the market? If you're going to have a strategy, um, it's got to be one where you seek to walk around the hill rather than climb over it. If you're going to have a strategy, you've got to have a point of difference. There is no point trying to collide head-on with your competitors in the same space. There is no point having the same offering because how do you differentiate yourself? So when I looked at the sector compensation law um, broadly across Queensland, um, you had 
um, a market dominated by corporates, corporates who um, charged mainly on time costing using relatively high rates, or I perceive them as high rates, normally using what are called uplift fees, which are loadings on what you would ordinarily charge where you act on a no-win, no-fee basis, it was expensive. Um, it was, as I perceived it, high cost. And as I perceived it also, there wasn't a focus on expertise. Uh, it was more about the business of law. Um, they would get their work through having large marketing budgets. They would advertise heavily. Um, and that was where most of their work came from. Now, when I analysed that, I thought, well, all right, if we're a low-cost firm, that's going to be very attractive. If we focus on being industry-leading and having the, the highest quality of lawyers we possibly can through having primarily accredited specialists uh, in personal injuries law um, in the organisation, those two points of difference, I thought, should be enough to get enough work to be sustainable even though you wouldn't be able to afford to advertise heavily. Um, and it, look, I've got to say, I, I made another mistake. I, I misjudged the size of that gap in the market. Mm. I thought it was a gap in the market that would be big enough that we could sustain a professional services, services firm of seven or eight people. And here we are today, um, five years on, and we've got almost 60 people in the organisation and we're still not doing any advertising on TV or radio or newspapers or any of that, um, we are sustainable based on our drive to focus on professional development expertise and simply being fair in all we do, including fairness in terms of fee structure. And I'm staggered by the size of that gap in the market. And that growth with the firm over those last five years, is it just to service that gap? And is that where you see going forward? Are you just servicing that, that need or is there a cap to where you feel you're comfortable arriving at? I can't answer the question because it's not a decision for me. Um, it's a decision that's going to have to be made by the incoming partners. The firm has got to a size where it's just way too big for the equity to be held by one person. Um, and as a result of that, I've had to uh, embark upon some early succession planning to take on partners to give others an opportunity to buy in, to become a partner um, and to go on that journey. Um, you're not going to retain the best and brightest people unless you give them a career path and an opportunity. And so by offering equity um, to others to buy in, it creates that opportunity. Um, it also um, deals with the succession planning issue that any professional services firm is going to have. So that'll be a matter for the incoming partners. I have got some who are in the process of um, buying in. We've uh, appointed some salaried partners in the past and they're getting the opportunity to buy in and there will be more mm. um, because of the size of the firm. And so they will decide where they want to take it to. And I'm there, I guess, to support the collective decision um, and we'll see where it gets to. I think we will continue to grow. We are continuing to grow at a rate of, you know, at least a couple of lawyers a year, but a bit more than that really. Um, plus all the support staff that come with that, I, I guess it's probably inevitable that we'll you know, get to 80 to 100 people in the organisation. Um, the question is when we get there. It's comfortable enough if we're approaching about 60 people. Um, that's a, you know, for, for a medium-sized firm. Um, that's enough to be big enough to make a difference. And is that, that decision to draw down equity rather than hold and sell out like you did... Um, 
in 2014. Is that decision now more, does that sit better with you? I don't think I would want to ever go through um, the sale of a professional services firm to a corporate again. Um, it wasn't a particularly enjoyable experience given uh, what happened to the firm that bought STO. But um, absolutely, the plan is to invest in people, create opportunities, um, enable other people to be the best that they can be, to succeed in their careers and to love what they're doing. And um, I think really what it's created is um, a, such a positive culture. Um, it's remarkable um, how, as a byproduct of all of this, of the approach to fairness, to ethics and values, to expertise, in a labour market which is reportedly so tight, we have a long list of lawyers waiting for an opportunity to join. Mm. And I think that that says much about the gap in the market. I think lawyers generally want to be in an organisation where they feel they can be the best lawyers they can be, doing good work and being fair with their clients and all stakeholders in all that they do. And through not having time costing and charge out rates and the higher fee structure. I think that makes the lawyers far more comfortable. They love that. They love the growth opportunities professionally in terms of a focus on being industry leading in their area. That is our goal. Mm -hmm. um, unashamedly admit that our goal is to make sure that we have lawyers who are leaders in their field. Um, we invest so heavily in professional development, um, but it's really attracting so many lawyers to that. Um, there's a lot of people who want to be a part of an organisation like that. So um, an unintended consequence, a positive byproduct of it has been the ability to recruit. Your time and effort um, in, with charities is anyone that would know you on the Sunshine Coast would suggest that it's so significant and um, the amount of work and, and energy you give uh, and volunteer, where, where does that come from and where does that... What drives that for you? Uh, I don't know what the answer is, what drives it. Um, I've always been passionate about giving back to the community. Um, maybe it's selfish that it makes me feel good when you can do something good for a charity that does good. Um, it's about leveraging what you have through your networks, your professional skills, your resources, leveraging that for the benefit of an organisation that itself can leverage those funds into so much good in the community and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a feel good. Um, I think it's just a selfish, I want to feel good about helping out and you know, there's some great charities that um, we support in the Sunshine Coast um, just because I you know, choose a, a few to focus on doesn't mean the other, other ones out there aren't worthy or great charities. Mm. Um, but I love supporting charities who do work locally in our communities and support um, our local communities as much as possible um, rather than those um, further afield overseas, for example. And is legacy a part of that going for Like how you're remembered? Um, I'm not sure I've considered legacy. Um, I'm sure I'd, I'd like to be remembered as a good bloke who did good things, but I'm sure we all would like to be remembered <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah, fair play. Um, how do you manage, as I see it, you've got an obligation or in terms of the learning aspect, you've got yourself as a lawyer and 
an extremely well awarded and deserving compensation lawyer, as well as the learnings and uh, time necessary to create that culture that you talk about at Trevor Shields and Partners. How do you split the two? How do you manage that? I don't think it's as simple as saying there's a dichotomy. Um, there are layers um, in an organisation like like a professional services firm when you want to have a positive culture, um, do great work um, to grow, to meet the needs and expectations of all the stakeholders who are surrounding and within the organisation. Um, I think at the end of the day, you've just got to be mindful of impact um, in all that you do. So from the way you deal with your staff. Um, you've got to try and find ways to make sure that, first of all, you, they need to have a solid, reliable income to meet their financial needs. Um, that's a given. So you've got to make sure that you put your organisation in a position to be able to afford to do that. You've got to be able to pay salaries at the top of the band, whatever the band is for that position in the organisation. But it's not just the staff. Um, you've got to commit to all the balls in the air. Uh, one of those is the training programs. Uh, one of those is resourcing them with the support they're going to need. That includes human resources. It includes your technology. It includes you know, the fixed assets that they need. Then you've got all the external stakeholders um, as well. You've got your supporters and referrers who are obviously a critical part of an organisation. Um, you can't grow a professional services firm through word of mouth without having supporters out there more broadly. So obviously, you know, you've got to be mindful of, of them as well. You've got to give time to the relationships. And then, of course, you've got your community stuff. Um, you've got to manage all of that as well. So I don't see it as being sort of just, you know, one of two things. It's there's so many different aspects to a professional services existence in a community um, like the Sunshine Coast. But all of that... I presume you're still reading the Queensland law reports and as new cases come out, you'd be scouring through every word of that judgment. And... On the contrary, every morning. Yeah. Every morning you are reading any new decisions from any superior court in Australia to making sure you're across it. And we do a summary of every single decision to give to all of our staff who, who need to learn from that so that there isn't a case that they're not aware of. Um, and... We even have gone so far as to make those publicly available. Um, we allow other practitioners, our colleagues, to subscribe to our case summary service so they get dished up summaries of all the compensation law cases from around Australia. Because we're doing it for internal um, training and development. Why not just give it to our colleagues? Um, sure, some are competitors, but we don't really see it that way. We're trying to exist in a, in a different part of the market anyway. Mm -hmm. So... Um, why don't you just be um, a kind-hearted professional and share those resources? If you've gone to the expense and the effort to create it, share it. Mm. Of an evening, you get to the bathroom and you look at yourself in the mirror. What are you seeing? Um, Middle-aged man who's not quite as fit as he used to be. <laughs> you happy? I've been blessed, Richard. Um, like everyone, I've had challenges thrown at me. Like everyone, there have been periods in my life where you've been down. Um, I've made plenty of mistakes professionally, personally. Um, there are things that I regret. Um, but, you know, in a big picture, we are so blessed to be here in Australia. I am so blessed to be in a community 
like southeast Queensland and the Sunshine Coast where there are so many great people who are happy to, to do what they can to support you if you are seen as supporting them in the community. Um, I love where we live. Um, you know, I've got a great team in the organisation. You know, there's just what's not, not to love about what we have here. It's too easy to focus on some small negatives in life. And it's about perspective. Um, let's be honest. We don't live in war-torn Ukraine. We don't live in a totalitarian country where there's a dictatorship that restricts and restrains what you can do. We don't live in a country in South Africa where your neighbours are dying of starvation. We're in Queensland, the luckiest country in the world where we have so much to be grateful for. So I know, Richard, I'm happy. And how, how do you, in the darkest of depths of the moments to yourself, how do you talk to yourself, Trev? How can I be better? Not satisfied with what you are, with who you are? No, and nor should we be. Because we're on a lifelong journey of learning. We are on a lifelong trajectory of improvement, but only if we choose it. I can be a better person. I can be a better lawyer. I can be a better father. I've just got to make that commitment to find ways to do that. And I love getting better in all of those facets. So, no, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with where I am, um, but um, I want to continue to do what I love, and that is to learn and develop. And at the moment, I'm really focusing on um, leadership and trying to not just improve my own skills through constant, constant learning um, and practising, but also helping others on their leadership journey because I think it's an important skill that we're kind of missing um, in this day and age to some extent. And, you know, I think those of us who uh, in the second half of our career, if I can put it that way, um, have a responsibility to share with those who are in the, the early stages of their career to help them be better people. It's a professional responsibility as much as it is a moral one. With all respect, you're probably on hole 10 or 11. <clears throat> what does the back nine of the Travis Schultz life look like for you? Um, look, I've got a lot more to achieve yet. Um, I've got a lot of people that I want to develop. Um, my plan um, is to try and find better work-life balance within a five-year period. Um, I have no intention to retire before a normal retirement age. Um, but I do want to um, enable others to step up to roles I'm currently filling, not just in the firm but in other community organisations and put myself in a position where in you know, the medium term I can achieve better work-life balance uh, than perhaps I am currently achieving. Um, but you know, these things, these plans are malleable, they change it may be that you know what I want to do actually changes as well. But at the moment, no, I see myself continuing to want to drive um, the practice forward to continue to improve professionally and personally and love life along the way. Mm. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much. 
great to be time. here. So thanks for having me, Richard. We finish off with the fire, with some quick fire questions. Your number one tip uh, for someone who is looking to be more successful in their life. Uh, number one tip is that the road to mediocrity is paved with excuses. Um, we need to be accountable and take responsibility for our own actions um, and our own success. Number one tip for someone looking to be to find more happiness in their life. Remember the big picture. Have perspective. We live in the luckiest country in the world. There are so many people out there who are not in the privileged position that we are in. So our little problems that we have that we perceive as being so big um, in perspective just might not be. And if we're able to see things through that lens, I think we will be happy. Uh, most influential person in your life? Um, I would have to say my mentor, who was a barrister now retired, um, King's Counsel, who was the guy who shaped my style and inspired my thirst for knowledge, Michael Grant Taylor. Uh, a book that you would recommend or gift? Uh, good to Great, I'd say from Jim Collins. Okay. And then finally, uh, a guest, famous or otherwise or not, uh, that you would recommend that we should get onto the podcast? Yeah, you've got to get Simon Sinek on. I think he's great. Uh, can you make a phone call for me, Richard? I'd love to hear from him. I think he's in Toronto, somewhere in Canada. But anyway, we can. We will. We'll reach out and say Travis asked. Please do. Travis Schultz, it's been wonderful. You're a, a wonderful person um, and you've always always had time for me and my stuff. So I really appreciate it and I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Excellent. Thank you, mate. That was Travis Schultz. Such a great interview with such a lovely person talking about all things law and business and life. I hope you all enjoyed that. And uh, if you did, feel free to let me know and also share it with people who you think would get something out of it. So until next time, peace. 